0: We all know baseball is one of America's fondest pastimes, but did you know there's a version of the sport designed specifically for the blind? It's called beatball, and the players, with the exception of the pitcher, are all visually impaired. Founded by the National Beatball Association in 1976, there are now more than 200 teams in the United States alone, with interest in the sport growing quickly among players abroad. For his debut book of creative nonfiction, "Beep: Inside the Unseen World of Baseball for the Blind." Author David Wansick spent over three years interviewing dozens of beat baseball players, coaches, volunteers, and fans in order to create a living profile of the sport and many of its star athletes. A diehard baseball fan himself, Wansick takes the reader deep into the culture of beatball, traveling across the United States, Taiwan, and the Dominican Republic to follow teams like the Austin Blackhawks, the Athens Timberwolves, the Indy Thunder, the Boston Renegades, and Taiwan Home Run, for a chance to hear their stories and share their passion for the sport with the world in one of the first ever books written on contemporary beep baseball. Here to discuss beep on the New Books Network today, please welcome David Wansick. David, thank you so much for being here with me today.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: So we're here today to talk about your debut nonfiction book, Beep Inside the Unseen World of Baseball for the Blind. Um, so as I understand it, is this one of the first books written? On beep baseball?
1: I think it is the first book that's predominantly about beep baseball. There is a book uh, called Feeling Sports from the 90s, written by the inventor of beep baseball, John Ross, but that's a memoir of his entire life, and he mentions beep baseball in a few pages. So, this is the first book about the sport uh, that's solely about the sport, and I'm very proud of that. Uh, I am not a, a visually impaired person, uh, and the visually impaired players have many stories to tell uh, about the sport, and I hope there will be more books, um, but I, I feel privileged to have been able to produce produce the first with a lot of help from them.
0: So in the first chapter of Beep, um, you profess that you've been a huge Boston Red Sox fan since childhood. Um, so what drew you initially to Beep baseball? Is it something that you came to through your love of baseball?
1: Well, uh, as a resident of Massachusetts, uh, I was in some ways born into Red Sox fandom. Uh, my father, mother, and older brother were all large fans. Uh, I was four years old when the Red Sox tragically lost the World Series to the New York Mets in 1986 in the in the Bill Buckner episode. Uh, so it's something that was a part of our family life growing up. I don't remember a time without baseball. Um, by the time I was five and six, I was out every day uh, in the summer. Uh, throwing a ball up to myself uh, or playing neighborhood baseball with a tennis ball, I got into T-ball, got into Little League, kind of carried on that way and certainly told myself stories about my own stardom, uh, would announce on the radio my own kind of backyard triumphs. And uh, then uh, then I met some other people who played baseball and realized maybe I wasn't absolutely the best player who ever existed. Uh, and I think that was uh, that was a shock to me. Um, and probably about that time, about nine, 10, 11, I really got interested in the stories and the mythology of baseball more than the dream of it being my future. Uh, it was something that, uh, would be something I would follow closely and carefully, but, uh, not necessarily something that would make up my professional life. So I think that was the, the very beginning of thinking that I would maybe write, uh, about the game. Mm-hmm.
0: And, So how did you come to Beep Baseball?
1: Well, in 2012, I was a a subscriber to Harper's Magazine, and I got an item, uh, or I read an item in the magazine, just flipping through about the the rules. And they had been taken directly from the website uh, and provided in the reading section of Harper's Magazine without any comment, without any reporting. Uh, And this seemed fascinating to me. I had been writing about... Uh, kind of off kilter sports, so 24-hour bike racing and a, a sport called wife carrying. I've been doing that for for websites, and when I read the rules here of beat baseball, it seemed like something that I might be able to look into. And I, I was pretty sure that the backstories of the players uh, were a good deal more interesting than simply a listing of the rules. So I ended up taking a road trip from Ohio to Iowa, which seemed really appropriate to kind of watch this baseball game in Iowa, the, the field of dreams state, right? Uh, and have this kind of uh, Americana experience with uh, with the old pastime. Uh, and I watched the World Series final in 2012, and I wasn't sure what to expect. I didn't know if it would be a very slow game, a, a game that was, you know, not very interesting for spectators or mostly dominated by volunteers. Uh, And that was not what I found. What I found were um, 12 people on two separate teams kind of hurling themselves around in the mud, um, shouting where the ball was, uh, chasing it (laughs) with vigor, uh, kind of using salty talk just like in any baseball clubhouse. Uh, And I realized that, you know, I could not only write a little article about this, which I did in 2012, but later uh, in 2013 realized that, uh, this could be a larger project. Um, and if I looked at various teams, um, and kind of their various rivalries and different personalities that I would be able to get, uh, kind of many perspectives on, on the sport. Uh, so that's what I set out to do in 2013, carried that through about 2015 uh, interviewing and watching games, uh, and then was able to produce the book.
0: So then you mentioned um, that the rules of beat baseball are different than baseball. So so what are those differences? Could you describe a little bit how the game is played?
1: Absolutely. So the main thing that we need to know is that the pitcher and the hitter are on the same team, uh, and they really have to be. So the pitcher stands 21 and a half feet away from the batter. And we'll shout like "set, ready, ball," and then at, at about the the "b" and "ball," the hitter will start a swing. Right, and the hitter needs to swing level, and the pitcher needs to kind of deliver it right to right to the hitter's wheelhouse. Uh, and that's how they that's how they hit. They work on work on it with communication and just consistency. Uh, once the ball is hit, the opposing team is in the field, and there are six fielders. Uh, there is a sighted spotter who gets to shout out one number. So we'll shout out something like three, which means that the ball is kind of to the left side about where a shortstop would be in a conventional game. And then the six fielders, they just run for the beep. So the ball is beeping uh, and they just need to find it in the field, which is extremely difficult. It's one thing if it's uh, if it's kind of stopped in the field and you can run right toward it. But think of a, think of a ground ball kind of learning by you. So one thing that you'll often, you'll often hear, um, is kind of, I closed my eyes sometimes to kind of listen to the game, uh, from the sidelines. And one thing you'll often hear is kind of the thud of someone diving to try to stop the ball and lift it up, which is a put out if you're able to do that, but you hear the thud and then you'd hear something like buy me on my Right. And uh, then a backup would come in and say and dive in for the ball and say, buy me on my left. And often there's kind of three divers and all this scurrying to kind of get the ball. Meanwhile, um, the batter, who's legally blind, but also blindfolded, is running in the field toward uh, an 100 foot tall blue base. I'm sorry, 100 feet away, a four foot tall blue base that's buzzing. And so they're just kind of running into the void uh, for another kind of sound. Uh, and when they get there, they just try to tackle it or kick it or touch it in any way. And so it's every every play is a race. Uh, I hit, I'm running toward a base while the fielders are trying to find and and kind of gather the ball in. So you'll often hear like this, this kind of collapse of the hitter, uh, you know, crunching into the base and someone grabbing the ball, shouting up, and then it's just this bang, bang play all the time. Um, If the hitter does make it to the base before the fielders collect the ball, that's a run and that's the end of the play. So they don't stay on base. They don't run to second, third and home. Uh, It's just the next hitter is up. Uh, So it's, it's simple in that way. But the, the gameplay itself, the strategy of the defense uh, is not simple. Uh, a lot of the times the defenders will uh, need to stay in their lanes, their predetermined lanes, so that they don't run into each other. Um, some teams have a, a real lingo about, um, about how to block the ball. So you'll hear, for instance, the Boston Renegades will talk about how they need to superman uh, Superman, a coffin corner ball, or they need to make sure they don't beach whale themselves. So there's this whole, this whole, um, lingo in, in beep ball about making sure you kind of spread your body as, as large as possible to stop the beep, but don't get on the ground too quickly because then maybe the ball doesn't get to you. So anyhow, it's a, it's a, it's a good sport an exciting sport and certainly a contact sport um, that uh, I was happy to discover.
0: Right. And, and so you had the opportunity to try playing beat baseball. Is that right?
1: I was able to play uh, and the book, I call it a deft bit of corruption, right? So I I was invited uh, to join the Athens Timberwolves team in the 2013 world series and this was a team that was playing in their first tournament and they had gathered together six players and this was the absolute minimum. And so they knew that if they had any kind of injury or even if they were badly affected from the heat or something like that, that they were going to need a uh, kind of a crack backup. So I stuck with them as close as possible. And when one of the infielders twisted an ankle, um, they did call me up. And so I ended up getting into the, into the field And I describe in the book, the feeling of bravery I had, you know, this was going to be easy for me. I, you know, I was a relatively athletic young guy. Uh, and as soon as the blindfold went on, that all stopped. Um, one of the, one of the players had told me that I was going to feel like I had moved 40 feet, even though I'd only taken four steps. So this kind of tentative, uh, feeling of, uh, uh, of the game and, what happened is I, I kind of thought I was rushing out to the field and I ran into the bench and, uh, you know, I got pointed a certain way and eventually got out there and played third base. And I got six balls hit, hit to me in that first game. And I was able to, uh, to field three of them. One of the, one of the things I realized about the game is that it's a game of stories. So since no one on the field can see what's happened, um, You never know when someone has made a great play or a blunder. And so a lot of what the players are doing is sharing their sense of what has happened with each other, trying to figure out with the volunteers if that's accurate. So people would on on the bench congratulate me for great plays that I knew were not great plays. uh, Or if I had I didn't know if I had made a, a bad error. If it, you know, it's not necessarily a terrible error if it goes through your legs or if you, you know, if you barely miss it because obviously that's going to happen. Um, but I loved that kind of patter back and forth about, hey, what happened out there? Did the umpire blow the call? Well, no, but uh, but maybe, uh, or you know, Lupe's amazing at at deep balls. Or no one comes in on the ball like Dave Benny, and and these stories that would carry on in in between teams and over years, and I would hear tales about people from the '80s uh, who you know were so amazing at at playing, and then stories built up around them uh, that they were they had this own their own kind of mythology in the game, uh, and that's something that you know, happens in baseball, uh, in, in major league baseball. And I was, I was kind of, uh, fascinated to see it developing in beat baseball, the way that, the way they talk. And of course, another thing that, um, that I was interested in was perspective itself, right? Not only the storytelling, but kind of the different views people have of what this sport means. Um, when you can't When you can't see the game, uh, you have to make certain different kinds of judgments. Um, And that's something that I wanted to be sensitive about as I offered my own perspective on the game.
0: So tell us a little bit about your research process. You say that you began in Iowa um, for your first ever beat baseball game. Um, And then where did you go from there?
1: So I wrote an article about the game in 2012, having interviewed a few people at the at the venue and then a few afterwards, and then I put the project aside for a little while and found it a, a year later kind of nagging me uh, that this is something that was important enough to me as a baseball fan and as a young father. I had just uh, just had a daughter about six months before and had maybe stopped writing in some ways uh, and realized, okay, well, I need to get going. Uh, and I think this is a project that I feel passionate about. So in July of 2013, I headed back to the World Series. And from that point on, I attempted to, This is a little insider detail here, I guess, about the writing life. <laughs> it's not always what, what everyone thinks, right? But from that point on, I, I tried to spend 30 minutes a day Uh, writing or interviewing. Um, Sometimes I would begin at 1129 and say, okay, I got to get my 30 minutes in before midnight and kind of fall asleep writing little descriptions of players. But I would go to as many games as I could during the World Series and some kind of uh, little tournaments. And then I attempted to just talk to as many people as possible uh, on the phone, essentially. Um, And these interviews, I would have five or six questions set. And they were pretty basic questions. But what I realized was uh, a lot of the players really wanted to talk. They really wanted to talk about their own triumphs, but their own kind of personal struggles. And then, you know, rivalries. uh, Like I said, kind of what controversies there were in the game. Um, and I would, I would just listen for sometimes 90 minutes or two hours, just, just typing away, typing away. Um, and that carried on probably for that year. Uh, I interviewed, I think about a hundred people. Wow.
0: That's a lot of people. Um, so then,
1: yeah, that was actually a bit of a challenge (laughs) after, after kind of amassing that amount. I didn't know how much I needed, I think. And, after I had all of those notes, it was a, a big challenge to say, "Well, this amazing thing this person said just can't fit." and sometimes it, it maybe might have taken me two years to figure that out uh, and you know it, it was it was certainly fun to have all those quotations, all those small details, and then try to figure out how to piece that story together
0: So which player or team resonated with you the most?
1: The first game that I attended in 2012, I met some of the Austin Blackhawks and they were in the final against a team called Taiwan home run. And they ended up losing that final. And that struck a chord with me as a Red Sox fan. uh, I had been used to losing that they've been big winners recently, but uh, growing up as a kid, I had been kind of used to being on the losing team. Um, And, it turned out the Blackhawks had a really rich history. So they had won the series essentially throughout the 90s, but it had a really, really long dry spell. Uh, they were also the number one ambassador for beat baseball worldwide. Back in the late 90s, they had taken the sport to Taiwan at the request of the Taiwanese government uh, and taught the game to a group of players over there, uh, players who were not experienced and not very good. Uh, but who over the years became uh, experts at the game. And so in 2012, suddenly Austin against Taiwan had this uh, had this amazing kind of backstory where the, the teacher was meeting the student and the student overcame the teacher in, in dramatic fashion, uh, coming back uh, from runs down um, to beat the Blackhawks and then beating them in a second game uh, later that day to kind of take the championship. So I saw... The Blackhawks, and they saw themselves as kind of the Buffalo Bills of beat baseball. So this this kind of consistent, always the bridesmaid sort of sort of team. And what I what I felt kind of genuinely was, well, these are these are the group to follow. But also, that's the beginning of a story, right? That's the beginning of a book when the kind of protagonist is is facing this this uphill climb. Right. And then I thought, well, as the as the years continue, we'll see. Will they keep losing? And this will be a book about a team that keeps coming up just short or will they kind of organize differently? Will they regroup? Will they end up overcoming their their foes and their own kind of internal conflict? And so that's what that's what I follow throughout the book. These Austin Blackhawks and their counterpart, Taiwan Home Run. And one of the best things I was able to do as part of this project um, with a lot of thanks to my wife, I have to say, was I was able to travel to Taiwan to meet uh, Taiwan home run uh, and get to know a little bit about their lives. So they were this juggernaut of beat baseball. They um, had had won a number of championships and had, and had defeated the Blackhawks in 2012. They went on to beat the Blackhawks in 2013. Um, and I needed to know a little bit about what Their everyday lives were because one of the one of the tensions I found uh, in this game was that I I would watch these players and other players would talk about each other. Uh, The players would talk about each other, and they had this kind of heroic stature. And I began thinking, well, okay, this is the Babe Ruth of beat baseball. This is the Cal Ripken of beat baseball. And it was easy to get into that mindset because I was in kind of sports reporting mindset. But of course, you also had to remind yourself, well. Every day, you know, Vincent Chu of the of Taiwan Home Run has to go sit on on a street corner and play clarinet to make money. Or uh, Ching Kai Chen is a, a foot masseur. Um, so the the great stars of beep baseball had these challenges off the field that had to do with their blindness. And I felt as though if I could spin that tale, right, um, that that would be a success. Here we're seeing. A uh, kind of amazing sports achievement um, mixed with off the field, kind of one foot in front of the other uh, daily struggle, and that was something that I felt like sports had come to had come to represent for me. That's something that that tries to get that story tries to be told <laughs> in a way in professional sports. But it's harder to see in professional sports, right, when, when there are multimillionaires and the most talented people on the planet. But for me, this is, this is what sports could be suddenly. Uh, these kind of flashes of athletic brilliance where the lives of the players were on the field every play. And if I could get to know them, I would know, well, each 12 of the, every, every 12 of these players, um, I know what they're bringing to the field. I know what they're bringing to this play from from their off-the-field life. And that became really exciting for me, and I thought I could make it exciting for the reader.
0: So I notice uh, that the concept of the underdog comes up a lot in Beep. Um, and as a Red Sox fan, I think you can speak maybe especially eloquently to this uh, sort of philosophical question, but what is it that we love about the underdog? Why is that such a pervasive narrative in
1: sports? So... I'm not sure. Although I tried to answer the question. Um, I think most people think of themselves probably as underdogs. That's the experience most of us have. Even if we're relatively successful, we still stub our toes and we still drop the garbage while we're taking it out to the garbage can. Uh, we've still had various losses and failings. Um, and I think the, the, Idea of the underdog, say in the NCAA basketball tournament, kind of prevailing, as Maryland Baltimore County just did over Virginia, uh, kind of reminds us maybe that the stories we're telling about ourselves or um, the stories other people tell about themselves in our presence can be upturned um, or don't they're not the way things have to be potentially, uh, and, and I think a, a sports upset does that for us in, in a little way. Um, this kind of surprising thing means that maybe I myself can do something surprising. And what I started to think about with beep baseball, of course, is that the great teams, whether it's Taiwan Home Run, this juggernaut, or uh, the Austin Blackhawks, um, this team that hadn't lost to another American team in a number of years and seemed to have this great beatball swagger. Again, what I, what I continued to remind myself was these aren't Goliaths in real life, these aren't the evil empire Yankees or the Chicago Bulls of the 90s. You know, these are folks who have trouble affording pizza uh, in the in the tournament hotel because they live on social security or lost their sight in a hunting accident uh, or couldn't see a blitzing quarterback in high school and realized, oh, my life is going to be a lot different. So even though there are some teams that are a lot better than others i felt like i was watching underdogs uh, battle it out in every game and that was something that uh, was especially engaging for me right it was in some ways I, I was able to root for every for every team now that doesn't mean that there weren't uh, weren't some tougher guys or some uh, some teams that you eventually felt, well, I, I kind of hope those guys go down you know? <laughs> uh, because I like these other guys a little more. You know, I tried not to play too many favorites, but I also in the book, I am an active fan, you know, and I, I became a, a fan of the Boston Renegades, uh, for instance, and they were a team who uh, had, had not finished above ninth place recently. And you know, you get involved in this tournament, and you think, "Oh, they win this one, they win this one, they win the next one. They're going to be in fourth. And it's—I quickly would become kind of heartbroken <laughs> when, when a team was eliminated that I had gotten behind, and it, in a ways, re- reminded me of what it was like to be a kid to care that much about sports that had kind of stopped for me in a way, uh, and I was able to to reclaim that in those uh, during those tournaments.
0: So the book is not just about beat baseball. There's also a thread throughout sort of about um, not only your love of baseball as a child um, and that love being placed on the back burner um, as you enter fatherhood for the first time. So can you talk a little bit about how those two themes sort of intersect?
1: Yeah. So when I was 21, the Red Sox were in the playoffs uh, against the A's and David Ortiz delivered a double uh, over the right fielder's head, and the Red Sox went ahead. And I remember being in my college dorm room, jumping up, uh, doing kind of a circle hop, just screaming, thanking God. Uh, And almost precisely 10 years later, the Red Sox were in the playoffs again. David Ortiz again hit a grand slam to tie the game against the Tigers. um, And I had fallen asleep. Uh, I had had a long day of having a nine-month-old daughter, uh, and it had been a while since maybe I'd slept through the night. And during this kind of great moment in baseball uh, that in previous years would have honestly would have sent me running through the neighborhood with my Red Sox helmet on, you know, hugging anonymous people. In this instance, I I had just totally conked out. And I realized that, um, you know, this was well, when I had started researching beat baseball and interviewing uh, beep baseball players, I, I realized that sports had just changed for me. Um, I had this like, kind of perspective I didn't really want to have, <laughs> this, this kind of not depressed perspective about, ah, this doesn't matter enough, but some sneaking sense that uh, there, there were you know responsibilities and practicalities that as a new father, I had to put first. Um, and yeah, some of the, some of the book is about trying to come to some kind of balance and I haven't gotten there for sure. And in the interim, I've had a, another child and then, in some ways wrestling with it again, you know, how to, how to think about our hobbies or our loves and consider them as important enough to spend our time on when there's, when there's dishes and bills and, and, and uh, dance class and so on. and, for, for me, and I, I know I'm not the first to think about life balance, uh, but it was something I thought I could write about in this context and also think about the players who have those life balance questions too. And of course, have an added element uh, of challenge with their sight loss, right? And I, you know, I, in some ways I... I hope I don't make the mistake of equating my struggles with theirs. That would be foolish. Um, but I, I did want to feel akin, um, akin to them uh, and, and felt like I did in, in our love of this game um, in, the midst of our, in the midst of our kind of hullabaloo.
0: So a lot of stories about disability in sports tend to strike sort of a grandly inspirational tone that your book really strives to avoid. Um, so my question is, how did you choose to portray the players? Um, and what factored into your decision to sort of subvert that expectation that people have?
1: So the very first game I was at, I asked a player named Danny Fabiano, hey, are you going to score a lot of runs today? And he said, ah, defense is where the game is won. And I kind of got this feeling he was perfectly nice, uh, and, and ended up being a really great guy. Uh, but I kind of got this feeling of like, Oh, wow. I had asked this softball question and this baseball player, you know, shot back at me and said, what do you know, kid? And and it just kind of clicked in my head that the story that maybe I thought I was going to tell about like, wow, look at this amazing thing was not the story that was happening. Um, that, that as much as we maybe want to turn people into heroes, that can have its own patronizing element um, and can let us off the hook from, you know, getting to know people, from thinking about people, from being able to think, well, maybe that, that person's kind of a jerk sometimes or, um, you know, difficult or, you know, complicated in a certain way. And I did want to show that. Uh, and at the same time, that was a challenge because I got to know people, you know, to be honest, on a limited basis. Even if I spoke to them for a number of hours or spent spent uh, weeks with them, I knew that I was knowing them uh, in a limited way. So I, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't making kind of sharp judgments um, and that I had that I had some backup for the way I was characterizing people. Um, At the same time, I thought that if I showed everyone just simply being brave, that that wouldn't be telling the story um, accurately. So um, I really did let people let people talk about themselves and I let people talk about their competitors. And I I tried my best to present something that that they would recognize um, as the kind of rough and tumble, but also compassionate, wonderful uh, sport that they play
0: right and the competition is is real between these
1: yeah. it's definitely real <laughs> yeah i mean there are some real run-ins there have been there have been physical fights uh for sure um there, there are they're definitely shouting matches during the game and i you know i thought that was all fair game as especially when it was on the field i, I was more careful if there were kind of um kind of chafings personal chafings uh, off the field though I do get into that a little bit uh, but if things were on the field it seemed like wow if that guy's yelling at that guy that's this is part of the game you know you assume that when a player is yelling at an umpire in in a sport that that's not personal right but there is a kind of sense of personal passion that's being reflected um and you know in one instance Someone comes off the field and and wants to check on a call and and one of the pitchers for the Blackhawks says, this doesn't involve you. And and then and then there's some muttering and, you know, a little a little profanity back and forth. And to me, that that just felt like the kind of soundtrack of baseball. Um, And if I could if I could capture that and put that forward, uh, I'd be I'd be bringing people to the field.
0: So, in the book, you go all around the United States, you go to Taiwan and you go to the Dominican Republic, meeting players from different base baseball teams. Um, so, what do you think is next for the sport? Where do you think it's going to go next?
1: I know that they are developing teams in a lot of different cities in the United States. I think there are between 31 and 33 teams going to be playing in this year's World Series in Eau Claire, Wisconsin at the end of July. Um, the sport is moving to different countries, as you say. It's in the Dominican and Taiwan, but also in Canada. I think one goal is for the sport to move to different continents. Uh, I know there's a there's a project to get the game going in Argentina. And the reason being is the more continents the game is on, the more um, valid it is as a potential sport for something like the Paralympics, uh, which would give it, of course, a a wider profile. Um, And there's a real belief in the league, and I share this belief, that people who are introduced to this game find a sense of freedom uh, in it that, that, you know, in some some ways, this is the first time people have had a chance to be on a team. Of course you have all the benefits of that. Uh, it's for some, the first time to get a certain kind of exercise where you're just running all out toward that buzzing base. Uh, and so there is this kind of social progress element of the game uh, and not just for physical activity, but as a kind of networking tool. You know, some some folks have told me, beat baseball, you know, helped me get a job. Uh, or another player said, I wanted to be an athlete my whole life and being blind really threw a wrench in that, but I have friends all over the country because of this sport. So it, it has that, that additional element. Um, in terms of progress in the game itself, you know, they're always trying to... Um, Make sure that the rules are fair, uh, always trying to make sure that the game is, is played at a high level. So, one thing that happened while I was reporting on the sport was there was some suspicion about whether or not some of the legally blind players could still see a little bit outside, kind of below their blindfolds. Um, and, you know, that's taboo in the sport for obvious reasons. And so there was a rules committee that uh, that recommended that people could wear eye patches underneath their blindfolds um, in the event that another team suspected that they might have an unfair advantage. So really, that, that's all a way of saying that there's this vibrant back and forth in the league um, and friendships. Yes, of course. Also arguments that I think I think create this incredible community for for these folks as many as 400 players uh, in the united states and and they want that to grow they want younger players um many of whom uh because of uh, a feeling of uh, increased ability play other sports or involve themselves in other activities but baseball wants them for the future um, as well and so the sport is developing growing kind of honing its rules um, and, and I think is a success right now for sure. So
0: then we may see more books about beat baseball in the coming years.
1: I, I think so. Uh, I think that there are a number of players who, who want to tell their own story. Um, and I want them to tell that story. Of course, I'm conscious of the fact that, uh I cannot tell this whole story. I, I I fall short in a number of ways when it comes to my own perspective uh, about visual impairment, uh, and so I do hope that uh, that players will kind of read this story. Uh, and I've heard from a, a number of them who have uh, enjoyed it, but maybe have had have had various thoughts about where it could have gone as well. And I, I would love to see I would love to see further stories about beep baseball for sure.
0: Well, David, I don't want to take too much more of your time, so I'm going to ask you one more question. Um, so, what are you hoping readers, and especially sighted readers, will come away um, from Beep understanding?
1: I hope that they understand the competitiveness of the game that it that it represents a kind of freedom within constraints. Uh, I hope that they see the personal lives of the players kind of manifesting themselves on the field and mixing in those. In those different ways, I hope that in some ways they forget that they're reading about blind players um, by the fourth or fifth chapter and get get wrapped up in in the game itself. But uh, from a personal perspective, I hope that they're entertained. I mean, I tried to um, have a lightness uh, about about the topic that could counterbalance the kind of obvious seriousness Um, There's one player, for instance, um, who was kidnapped in Ethiopia and chemically blinded. This is very, very heavy stuff. But his life does not feel heavy to him. His life feels like an opportunity and like something he wants to have fun with. And that really was an invitation to me to, uh, I thought, mix. The kind of uh, joviality of the sport, uh, with, with the seriousness that's really one of the ground rules. So I hope that readers would, um, uh, occasionally, you know, be touched by the stories, but then also occasionally laugh, um, at the hijinks. And, you know, if you, if you'd allow, I'll share one story of some of those hijinks. So the Austin Blackhawks, who I, I did follow are known in the league as, as a real pranking team. Uh, and one of the things that they do is they'll fill each other's bath bags with banana peels, and of course this has a this has a different uh, result when you, you open up and you can't see it. Uh, when they travel, they will take mattresses off of rookies' hotel beds so that the the rookies will kind of kind of fall onto the bed frame. They may they may put toothpaste on their telephones so that and then call the room so the rookies get a get a a face full of uh, Colgate. Uh, So these are kind of the the background stories that I wanted to be able to share so that readers could see the kind of basic camaraderie of baseball um, that helps these, helps these guys um, get through their lives, right? And enjoy their lives. Um, When they high five right on the field, they're high-fiving to say good play, but they're also high-fiving to kind of get back in place. And that was something that, that stuck with me, um, that as competitive as this was, uh, and as baseball as it was, um, there was always that, that element of, we're doing this together, um, and we're doing this in spite of, um, and look at this, right? Look and see what we can do.
0: Well, David, thank you so much again for coming on the show and talking about your latest debut book, Beep, Inside the Unseen World of Baseball for the Blind. Thank you, Zoe. David wants listeners to know that there is an accessible version of Beep available through iBook and Kindle platforms on Swallow Press's website. My name is Zoe Bossier, and you've been listening to a conversation with David Wancic on the New Books Network.